0: Well, welcome to the brand new year, and I don't know what you think about New Year's resolutions, and if you do them or if you don't, but like it or not, we are in the world of New Year's resolutions, and so I don't know if you can relate to any of these, but I picked out some of my favorite New Year's resolutions for 2019. I'm going to start with this lady up here. Got her? Uh-huh. And then I'm going to go here, because this may relate to some of your list as well. I'll give you a minute to read this one. Might be realistic for some of us. Twitter had fun with this, by the way. Twitter moments popped in the first of the year that some people had already broken their New Year's resolutions by January 1. And here's what Jill Caulfield had to say on December 31. Not even midnight, I've already broken three of my New Year's resolutions and two of the 10 commandments. I wish you all the best for 2019, she says. <clears throat> this guy named James Amblin wrote on January 1. He said, I've broken my resolutions, but I'm optimistic about 2020. <laughs> Now, I don't know where that lands for you. I don't know what your interests are as this year rolls around. And, you know, we have a love-hate relationship with them. Sometimes we're ready to change some things and other times we're not. And some recognize that it's really another month and the bigger issue is do our habits reflect our priorities and, you know, adjusting that. Making smaller changes is often better than bigger changes because we can manage them and then they can become bigger things. I think we all understand some of those realities. But but here's what I think will happen to you in 2019, that things will change for you in some way, shape, and form change is coming down the pike, whether we like it or not. And as one of my pastor friends said, that anticipated change is better than chaotic change. And so it's better to anticipate the change that will be rather than have to react to the chaotic change that might come. And I agree with that in general, that it is better to anticipate that. And so I just want to tell you, and not that you need me to tell you, but you know that things will change. Sometimes you're going to like the change because you're going to choose it. You're going to go to a different place. You're going to move to a different location. You're going to get a different job. You're going to stop doing something and start doing something else. And it'll be your choice. Sometimes that change will be forced upon you and you won't like it. You will be forced to move out of your job. You will be forced to move out of your home. You will be forced into a different relationship and it won't be of your choosing, but change will come no matter how you put it. And As you think about Christian faith in particular, I want to focus in on that this morning. I want to make the point that Christian faith is actually all about change, whether we like it or not. Somewhere along the line, sometimes I think we've been sold a bill of goods that says that if you want to keep things the same or if you want to aim for stability, then come to a church because a church will stay the same. While all the other organizations in the world, if you will, will change, you can find stability in the church. And I would argue that while you may not find stability, you should be able to find peace, but that peace and stability are not synonymous. That peace happens even in the middle of change. And I would argue that if you're a Christian or if you're someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, you of all people know that we have been called to constant change. Christians are called to constant transformation. Christians are called to constant renewal to become more and more like Christ. That is not an event, but a journey. It's not a one-time thing where I declare and I pray and I confess my sins and I become a Christian and then thankfully I can go to a church that will never change again in the history of the world. But it actually is an ongoing reality that your heart, my heart, your mind, my mind needs to continually be in the business of change transformation, renewal, thinking about things in new and different ways. Here's what we know about ideas and new things, that ideas actually drive innovation. Ideas drive innovation, but big ideas drive transformation. Ideas drive innovation, but big ideas actually drive transformation. The two are different. About 150 years ago, the only way to get around North America or the United States would have been by horse and carriage or horse and buggy, right? And the ideas around that were significant. There's innovation around how you should build a carriage. Let's build bigger wheels. Let's build them with different materials around the outside. Let's make them a little bit lighter. Let's take care of the horses a little bit better so they're faster, stronger, and live longer so you don't need to spend as much on what drives the carriage. And those ideas were all good and they drove innovation. Carriages all looked different. They began to get faster, but really they were only for the rich and the wealthy in our country. And then some guy by the name of Henry Ford came along and had a big idea, a big idea, to let me develop something that the masses can actually get wherever they want, whenever they want. And he developed the Model T and our entire transportation system has been transformed because of a big idea. For many of us in our own lifetime, we've had several big ideas that have driven transformation. Back in the day, there used to be telephones in homes. You ever remember that world where that existed? Something called a landline. As the telephone technology began to advance, ideas around that began to develop along with it. And pretty soon, we began to pursue something called a mobile phone. You remember that language around that? Do you have a mobile phone? Some of you actually had a car phone. Remember that language, car phone? Some of your car phones were actually hooked up to your car horns. So when you were on the job site and someone called your phone, your horn would start beeping, which your neighbors loved. When you were working on the roof and couldn't get down quickly to get to that phone, And ideas drove innovation, but somewhere along the line, someone by the name of Steve Jobs had a bigger idea that actually drove transformation. Said, what if we take not just the phone, but the power of the newly developed and accessible internet and mash them into one thing and create this thing called the iPhone that has completely transformed the way that we think about technology, the way that we think about our lives, and the way that we think about almost our entire world, harnessing both the power of the internet and the phone in one device. We don't even call it a mobile phone or a car phone anymore. We hardly even call it a phone. Big ideas drive transformation. And what I want to talk with you about for the beginning and opening of this year of 2019 is what I'm going to say is the biggest thought that you will ever think. The biggest thought that you can ever have. The biggest idea that you will ever think will transform the way that you do everything. In your world, the way you relate to your spouse, to your teammates, to your business, your finances, your anxieties, your insecurities about how you see yourself in the mirror, your children, your grandchildren, your future, your health. The biggest thought that you can ever think will indeed, because big ideas drive transformation, will indeed have the potential to transform your life. This morning I want to introduce you to the idea of transformation. This is an introductory message to the real meat of this which will take place next week for the following five weeks as we talk about the biggest idea or the biggest thought that you will ever think. But this morning I want to talk to you about transformation, what it is, how it works, and why I think you should want it. Because transformation is at one time very appealing and exciting and innovative, and at the same time scary, different full of anxiety. Because if indeed transformation comes, that might mean that you might need to stop being in the relationship that you are in right now. That might mean that you need to leave the job that you are currently in. That might mean that you need to lead your company in a completely different direction or change a leadership structure in that group. It might mean that your marriage that's going this direction, you might actually need to Do the thing that you know you've needed to do but haven't had the courage to do, but you might actually need to do that. Transformation actually requires a tremendous amount of courage, and because of that, we would prefer to make smaller changes that may or may not actually lead to life change. So, I want to talk to you about transformation, what it means, how it works, and why I think you should want it. And then, the following week, for the next five, I want to go into the biggest thought that you will ever think that can drive the kind of transformation. That I think you actually really want. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to an early church that was stationed in Rome. I'm going to invite you to turn to the book in the Bible called Romans. It was a letter uh, written to a new church in Rome. Frankly, every book in the New Testament was a new church, but anyway, you know, written to the, the early church if you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew near you. That's our gift to you, by the way. But Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to start. And um, what I want to do is take you into some background quick. Here we go. Whoopsie. Hold on. There we go. All right. I want to take you to the Verses just before Romans 12 to give you some background on what you're looking at. So if you have it, your Bible in Romans 12, just look up here on the screen for one second and then we will um, jump into Romans 12. This is what comes right before it in Romans 11, verses 30 to 32. Paul's writing here and he says, Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. If that's not confusing enough, we'll go through it slowly to make sure that it makes a little bit of sense. Look at the beginning again. He's writing, he's saying, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy. In other words, you were disobedient, and instead of receiving punishment for your disobedience, you actually received mercy. What wasn't deserved is actually given to you, and then as a result of their disobedience, meaning the other group, that is um, the Gentiles, is writing to Jews in particular first, and then he'll speak to, so they too, that would be the Gentiles, they too have now become disobedient in order that they... Two may now receive mercy. So Jews, it's not just you, but actually Gentiles, they were doing the same thing you were. It just looked different. You were disobedient. Remember, you got mercy, and guess what? They're disobedient, and guess what? They get mercy as well. And to summarize it all, he finishes this way, for God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have the opportunity to punish them later on. (laughs) God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So that in light of their disobedience, the mercy that he offers might stand up and rise up and be like, shoot, I don't deserve that. I've been disobedient, I've been dishonoring to what I know God would want me to do, and and I've done that, but now instead of getting the just punishment for my sin, I've actually gotten mercy. It's a crazy thought, it's an absolutely crazy concept because it's obviously not deserving. And so it's in light of that that Paul writes then in Romans chapter 12. And if you have your Bible open, I want to invite you to look at that now with me. In light of this, he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what god's will is his good pleasing and perfect will now these two verses are going to be where we're going to look at this morning they'll be our focus for the morning and i want to take you back to the beginning of verse 1 he says, therefore, like in light of what you just read, what you just heard, I urge you, I'm kind of prodding you, I want a desire to move you to somewhere, I'm, I'm urging you, brothers, in view of the mercy of God that, that I just explained, in view of what God has done, remember you were disobedient, deserved punishment, you actually got mercy, Like remember that, in light of that, I want you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He goes into Old Testament language. He goes into an Old Testament worldview all of a sudden and says, remember the Old Testament, the way that we used to worship, we would bring sacrifices to please God and to honor him. We used to do that. Now, young church, what you get to do in light of God's mercy is offer yourself as that sacrifice. You are the one. You're the one as the living sacrifice who says, you know what? I'm I'm here, like, for you, and and I know I deserved punishment, but I actually got mercy, and in light of that, I want to give to you the very best that I have. And then he goes on in verse 2 to say, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Strange couple of phrases going on here, and I think they need some clarification for me at least, and I hope it will be helpful for you. And he begins in verse 2, he says, Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And I don't know what translation you're reading from. If you're reading from the New International Version, it probably says, Do not conform. If it says from the ESV at English Standard or New American, it probably says, Do not be conformed any longer. But if you're a grammar nerd, grammar nerds arise for a moment and uh, enjoy the next moment uh, here. Uh, Grammar matters here, and the, the way that these words are expressed matters, so what he's saying here is not, in the, in the New International Version, it actually sounds uh, like you should no longer conform, like you have, you're doing the act of conforming. But actually, in the Greek, the the voice, we don't have to talk about this in English, so just Bear with me just for a minute in my grammar nerdness. Okay, the voice of this verb is is middle or passive, and what that means is, rather than saying "don't conform," he's saying "don't be conformed," which totally changes the way that I should think about this. What he's saying is, there are patterns in this world that have an effect on you, that press on you, and they are the one doing the action of the conforming onto you. It's not so much that you are conforming to the patterns, but that the patterns of the world actually change and impact you. You are being conformed by the patterns of the world. That's what he's saying. Okay, So don't be conformed by these patterns. These patterns are... Patterns that you and I experience all the time. They're they're patterns of the technologies that we have created, by the way. Uh, John Dyer, in his book, From the Garden to the City, talks about technology in a brilliant way, in my opinion. And he makes this statement. He says, first we shape our tools, and then our tools shape us. And he's right. He gives a great illustration in there about, a imagine a plot of ground in front of you, just dirt in front of you, and your job is to dig a bunch of holes for the day, and you have eight hours to go dig holes If all you had was your hands, you might be able to dig one or two, depending upon how many stones, roots, or rocks, whatever that you get into. You might be able to dig a few more than that if you're really gung-ho about it. Now, somewhere along the line, if you were to do that every week, you would realize along the way there's got to be a better way. And maybe if you had some steel around, you could figure out how to create and maybe invent even a shovel. And this is what we've done. We've invented the shovel. And now all of a sudden, if you have the shovel and you have the same job next week, you might be able to dig instead of two, three holes a day, you might be able to dig 50 holes a day because you have a shovel. You have a tool. But in the digging of the shovel, in the digging of the holes, by using the shovel, you realize at the end of the first day, there's certain things that have happened to your body that didn't happen to you last week. All of a sudden, your lower back is sore in a place where it wasn't sore last week, and there's blisters on your hand that you didn't have last week because you're using a different tool, and it has had an impact on you, and it has changed you. First, we shape our tools, he says, and then our tools shape us. First, we create the iPhone, and then the iPhone creates us. First, we create Instagram, and then Instagram shapes our view of our identity, right? Right? So the patterns of this world, the things that we have created that make sense to us, first we create them, but if we're not careful, we don't realize that the impact that has on us. Is this not true? We've created a world where we wake up every day, and I don't know if you have the inclination like I do, but... The inclination, whether it's to check your social media page or to to check yourself against the current images of what beautiful women look like in the world or strong-looking men look like in the world, the patterns of this world that we constantly feed a diet from, he's saying, don't be conformed by the patterns of this world. Don't thoughtlessly wake up in the morning, roll out of bed, check Instagram, and look at yourself in the mirror and think, what a loser you are. Because that is not what you are meant to be. So don't be conformed any longer, he says, by the patterns of this world. The tools that you have shaped, you've got to realize are shaping you, and you're smarter to recognize what those things are. And don't be conformed by those patterns anymore. And the alternative to that is, he says, but be transformed. But be transformed. Now, again, give me a minute on the, the verb nerdage, grammar nerdage, for a minute Again. But be transformed again, being transformed isn't saying that actually you do the work of transforming he's saying but but be transformed that transforming is actually the end it isn't what you do it's what um in their book, The Four Disciplines of Execution, there's three authors, I can't remember them all, but they talk about how organizations change and they talk about there are um, both uh, lag measures and lead measures. In other words, if you want your organization's bottom line next quarter to increase by 10%, the only way to know that is to measure at the end of the quarter and look down the quarter and say, you know, by the end of the quarter, I would want our bottom line increased by 10%. That's what they call a lag measure. A lead measure is what am I going to do today to determine that that lag measure will actually happen. To put it in simpler terms, if you have a desire this year to lose a certain amount of weight, if you want to lose 10 pounds in two months, you're going to say, hey, as I step on the scale later on, I want to have lost 10 pounds. And the lead measure today, then, is that I'm going to watch my calorie intake and maybe exercise, okay? So those are lead measures. Lag measures are what happens later on. He's saying, be transformed. In other words, the transforming is what happens later on. You will end up being transformed, but it's not like you wake up today and you think, today I'm going to transform myself. That's not what he's saying. That isn't the way it works. Just like you don't wake up and say, today's a day that I'm going to have lost 10 pounds. No, today is the day where I realize I'm going to have one cookie instead of seven. Okay? That's what I'm going to do. It's a lead measure that will be predictive of a future outcome. If I want to be transformed, there are certain lead measures that I need to do that will predict that future outcome. And he describes it right there. Do not be conformed any longer by the pattern of this world, but be transformed. And then he gives the lead measure. He gives that thing which now we are to do. And look at it right there in your text in verse 2. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's what he tells you, and he tells me, and he tells anyone who's ever called themselves a Christian to do. That in the renewing of your mind... In the taking control of your mind, in the putting of your mind into a space where you are constantly in this renewal cycle of thinking in fresh and clear ways about who God is, what the gospel means, how I flesh that out in my marriage, in my business, in my workplace, as my mind is constantly being renewed, that is my lead measure today, then the lag measure is, later on I will end up being transformed because of the renewing of my mind. And that is a call for a constant change. It is a call for a constant rethinking. And this is why I tell you, this is why I think you already know, that the Christian life is about constant change. It's about constant renewal. It is not about stability as much as it is about peace. Those are two different things. You can have peace in the middle of instability. But it is about this constant call and draw to renew, renew. Think again. You have assumptions about who God is because of the way your father raised you, I get it. You have assumptions about the Bible because of the way your church background is or isn't, I get it. You have assumptions about Jesus because of whatever. You have assumptions about who Christians are because of people who have let you down, hypocrites, people who have failed morally or whatever. You have assumptions about that, I get it. He's saying, Christian, be willing to challenge your assumptions and be ready to renew your mind over and over and over again that you can be transformed, that you will no longer be conformed to the patterns of this world. We see how this works in the opposite in the beginning of Romans. Romans chapter 1, he writes this. He says, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done He's saying there are people in this world who no longer thought it was necessary to wake up in the morning and ask, what would God have me to do? I don't need the knowledge of God anymore. Fine. Then he gave them, they gave their mind over to whatever they thought was best for the day. Whatever they thought was best for their relationships. Whatever they thought was best for how the world should work. Just gave them over to that. This is about the, the work in the mind. And, and Then he finishes his verse with a powerful, powerful way. In verse 2, uh, look what he says at the end of this verse. When you do this, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That is a powerful statement. And if I had, if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me, Hey Tim, how do I figure out what God's will is? How do I figure out what God's will is? How do I figure out what I should do next? How do I figure out what God wants me to do in my future choices? How do I figure out where I should go to college, who I should date, you know, who I should marry? How do I figure out what God wants me to do in my relationships? How do I figure that out? This is what Romans twelve two just says right here. You want to know how to do that? Renew your mind. And in the renewing of your mind, your life becomes transformed because you, in new ways, think about this world and who God is and your relationship to him in a completely different way. It doesn't conform you any longer to the pattern of this world, and all of a sudden, through all the mess and all the busyness and all the noise, you see, this is how God would have me to act here. This is what God would do here. I know this because my mind is constantly thinking of. I'm being renewed in. I'm seeing him in a fresh way. I'm seeing the implications of the gospel. I'm seeing that I deserved punishment, but I got mercy. And in view of God's mercy, my mind is rethinking what I should do. And in that, all of a sudden, I am finding great clarity about who I should date where I should go to school, what kind of job I should take, what the future of my business should look like. All of a sudden, clarity comes as my mind is being renewed. So let me put it to you this way. If you have a mind for change, you have to change your mind. If you have a mind for change, you have to change your mind. If you have a mind for change and you think that change will come and you want to be growing as an individual, as a person, as a leader, in any way that you are, you have to change the mind for that purpose, for that reason. a mind for change, you have to change your mind. And this is where I want to kind of drop us for a minute and say these verses to me are so critical to help us, I hope, as a church, for a foundation to think about what does transformation look like for me? What does transformation look like in my relationships? What does it look like for our church? What does it look like for us to be people across the aisle, across the pews, to say, this is who I want to become. What I'd like to do with you, by the way, I'd like to use these verses as a platform for the next six months not to continue to speak on this passage every, every week, although that would be something, right? That may not be that interesting, but it would be something. But to use these verses as a platform to guide our public messages here, public teachings for the next six months. And what I'd like to do for the next six months, beginning next week, step into the biggest thought that you will ever think. Next week, I'd like to talk with you about this, who God is. For five weeks, I want to talk to you about the biggest thought that I think you will ever think is the thought you think of when you think of God. The biggest thought that you will ever think of is the thought you think of when you think of God. And it may seem so big that it's hard to get your hands around. It's kind of like air, air. It exists, and if it weren't here, we would suddenly miss it, but we don 't often think about the air because we just wake up breathing it, and often we think, well, God exists, and he 's probably nice somewhere, I think he 's powerful, oh, he created the sunrise and the sunset, so he must be powerful. I want to go further with you because the biggest thought that you will ever think, is the thought you think of when you think of God. And if you and I don't have clarity around a renewed mind on who God is, I don't believe we will be transformed in all of our relationships to reflect his character in all of them. So I'd like to talk about who God is. And then after that, for a couple of weeks, I'd like to talk with you about who you are. I'd like to talk to you about who you are. What is your constitution? What is your makeup? Who are you really? Who is it that you're meant to be? And then finally, I'd like to, for a couple of weeks, talk about what the church should be. What the church should be. Who is it that we should become together? These will be three different series. We'll label them differently, but they're all based on the same idea, that the renewal of our mind is essential for us to, receive, to, to move toward transformation so that we are not conformed any longer to the pattern of the world, and that we can know what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So ideas... <laughs> drive innovation, but big ideas drive transformation. And here's what I hope for you next week, beginning next week. As we get into the biggest thought that you will ever think, I hope that as we get into who in the world God is beginning next week, that this big idea, this big thought about God will indeed drive a transformation for you, that your mind can be renewed, that you can think again about who he is with the net result of your life. Being transformed to become more and more like Jesus Christ. I'd love to have you on the journey for the next five weeks, the biggest thought you will ever think starting next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to stop in this little letter to the book, to the people in Rome, to see again how transformation works and the importance of the renewal of our mind in this process. So I pray for us as we step into 2019 with our various goals and priorities and things that we'd love to see accomplished, and some of these things are simply wishes or dreams because we don't have an action plan associated with them yet, and I understand all that. But I pray that above and beyond all of that, that you would help us to step back, if especially if we call ourselves a Christian, to come into the space and be willing to renew our mind in the thinking about who you are, that we can follow a God who legitimately is the God of the Scriptures, the God who's been revealed to us, the one who is and always has been I am. So I pray that our minds would be renewed, our thinking would be challenged, that our lives will ultimately end up being transformed for both our benefit but also for your glory. And so we pray that we ask for your grace in that. We ask for your courage in that as we walk through this space. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.